You're listening to the Australian Army Training and Doctrine Podcast. Welcome to this short series of podcasts from the Warrant Officer and Non-Commissioned Officer Academy here at Canungra in Queensland. With me is the Commanding Officer of the Academy, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Scott. And in two previous podcasts, we've been looking at some of the work of the Academy and how people can prepare for instructor roles here and indeed prepare to attend a course as a trainee. Today, we're going to be looking at the legacy of the Commanding Officer as he prepares to move on to his next posting. So looking back on your time here at the Academy, what do you think you've learnt from your experience? First, I've never known two years to pass so quickly. It's, uh, it's almost passing the blink of an eye as I'm, I'm speaking with people on the pre-command course in 2017 about just how quickly uh, time seems to move when you're, you're having fun as the commanding officer. One of the things I learned early on is uh, that patience was required and I ought to orient myself to the needs of the organisation before I start barking orders. And... The only exposure I'd previously had with the, the Warren Officer and Non-Commissioned Officer Academy was attending promotion courses, grad parades from my soldiers or heading up to high range to visit my troops in the field. I didn't know much about the daily business when I, I came in. And so a former uh, senior army commander's approach of of taking some time to observe, to orient, to decide and to put their thinking into a 100-day assessment, I think appealed to me. So I learned that perhaps the organisational requirement for me in my role was just to to take a knee and to to move around and to hear from my, my talented and, and tenured team members and get their take on what the organisation needed from the boss. And th- that allowed me a chance, I think, to to grow into my role while I had some trusted safe hands around me to advise on those things that might catch us out as an academy while I learned the ropes and then produced the uh, the academy operations order. I think at all levels, commanders are both the, the captain and the coach of their organisation. And from my perspective as the CO and CI of a training institution, I only have a duty of care over armies, trainees for a short period of time. They actually belong to a different commanding officer and a different regimental sergeant major in their parent unit. And I think that that's something that jumped out to me is the requirement of the command team to serve the function of both the captain and the coach, not only to lead the team onto the field, but also to be heavily involved in the training of the force, both individually and collectively. Another thing I saw was in my last two years, we had the silences, the accomplice and the the hitting home videos that were provided from hire. It gave me a really good understanding and the ability to reflect on what bystander behaviour may look like to soldiers. And uh, it reaffirmed Army's expectations. And I think that working with the academy team members in the CO's hour, it gave me a really good understanding of what we can reasonably expect of our people in terms of acceptance of responsibility, not only for actions, but also for inaction, which was one of the central tenets of bystander behaviour. People seeing wrongdoing, but not stepping in for whatever reason. And I think that in my time in Army now, 23 years, we've adapted our culture that 
we need to do what is right more than simply while we're in uniform or while we're at work. Army has an expectation and a rightful expectation on us that we need to act and we need to do what right is wherever that, that may be, whether it's on the married quarter patch in a suburb where things are happening over the back fence that shouldn't be happening. We have a duty of care as leaders to assist in those certain circumstances. And that certainly is a change to army culture. But also it's reaffirmed in me three words that I once heard from a senior officer, and I've, I've used it quite often in my mentoring and my engagement with the courses. Responsibility, accountability, and culpability. As an Australian soldier, our employer rightfully has an expectation that we're responsible and accountable whether we're in uniform or not, whether we're deployed on operations or not, and indeed whether we're sober or not. Responsibility and accountability is enduring. And for a leader, and of course we deal with leadership courses here where we're growing armies, future corporals, sergeants and warrant officers, those individuals are also responsible and accountable for everything that happens within their organisation. So that is the platoon sergeant or the troop sergeant in a workplace is responsible and accountable for everything that happens, whether it's good or bad, in that platoon. And certainly a message we put to people at the academy is that if praise is given, pass it down. Acknowledge those people that have delivered the capability, that have earned the praise. But if something has gone wrong, the buck stops with the boss, the buck stops with the commander, the buck stops with the leader. But just because something has gone wrong and the individual is responsible and accountable, that doesn't mean that they lose their job. It doesn't mean they've, they're subsequently going to be convicted of an offence contrary to the DFDA. That doesn't necessarily mean they're removed from army. So we need another test, and that test is culpability. And I've had explained to me three enduring tests for culpability that I still can't top, even though it was over 10 years since I heard it from a mentor of mine. Culpability means you're at fault, you've done something wrong, or using the soldier's language, you stuffed up. The test for culpability being, were you personally involved? So if something went wrong, and for example, I use the, the good old platoon bonding activity, where you're getting to know your team members over a couple of, of drinks as adults, and all of a sudden control is lost and that platoon supplants a crocodile story to hit the front page of the NT News. We all know that you start looking for the senior person and it rolls downhill from there. In terms of the first test of culpability, were you personally involved? And if there's a leader leading the charge when something went wrong, chances are they're culpable and there may be consequences. The second test of culpability is... What did you do about it after something went wrong? And so if someone sought to conceal that which happened or lie about it, again, you might just find yourself in more trouble than if you had have accepted responsibility in the first place and said, this happened, this is on me, this is what I've learned from it and this is how I'm going to make sure it never happened again. If people lie about it or conceal it, chances are they're culpable. And the third, I think, cuts to the heart of what's important to leaders, whether they be non-commissioned officers or warrant officers. Could something more have been done to prevent that which went wrong? Or could you have reasonably been expected to have foreseen what went wrong? 
And I think the good old example is use of personal protective equipment. We know that a lot of soldiers are very keen to put fashion over function, where the latest Ray-Ban sunglasses look fantastic, but have a total of no ballistic protection properties. So those people that have been negligent in their battle procedure, that have failed to do kit checks and inspections, that have failed to understand whether or not soldiers are wearing their personal protective equipment correctly, they're out on mission, something goes boom, a small bit of frag goes straight through those sunglasses and takes out a kid's eye. Unfortunately, he's had he or she has had a lifelong consequence for their poor decision. But it really shouldn't stop there. Some questions should be had to the Lance Corporal, the Corporal, the Sergeant, and indeed the officers involved there. Was it specified in orders that PPE was to be worn? Were kit checks done? Was there a culture in that organisation that perhaps was contrary to the expectations of the organisation, such that young Australians went on patrol using equipment other than what they uh, ought to have done? The last uh, big ticket item I've learned is to do with potential. We know that Army is a meritocracy. The Career Management Agency advise that decisions on who promotes over those that don't promote is based on performance, qualifications, experience, values and potential. Now, a lot of those qualities are objective. Performance is based on the performance report and there's numbers. Uh, it's, it's objective. Qualifications and experience, again, is quite objective. But when you're looking at potential, it's a subjective assessment that leaders, commanders are making on those people. And what I've learned in my time as the commanding officer is that potential for me, it's, it's more important about what someone is weak at and what they're doing to resolve that weakness. And so it's perfectly rational that a person will play to their strengths, but that's in their comfort zone. I see true potential is someone that has that responsibility to understand their weaknesses or to engage appropriately with their mentors or with their assessing officer to get an indication on what other people might see their weaknesses at and then someone doing something about it. And a mentor of mine that I've known for a number of years who just happens to be a very senior regimental sergeant major, that individual has identified a weakness in public speaking. And what I was really thrilled to see is that that individual toddled themselves off to Toastmasters with a view to improving their public speaking. That means a lot to me, that that individual had that level of confidence in themselves and that humility that they understood a weakness and they were doing something about it. That, to me, indicates true potential. So looking back, what's been your greatest challenge while you've been the commanding officer here? Sharon, I think the greatest challenge is balancing the activities of soldiers uh, under command. Earlier today, I talked about my view of soldiering as representing a dual focus in steady state. We need to achieve the mission today. Uh, that is for the academy to lead, mentor and train those trainees on our courses here and now to prepare them for tomorrow. But I also have a responsibility and a duty of care to my instructors and team members in the academy to allow them to prepare themselves for their own challenges. And so a number of my sergeant instructors will promote to Warren Oster at the end of the year and so on and so forth. And some of my senior Y1s have tier progressed from Alpha to Bravo. And indeed, I see potential of them to compete in time, potentially even all the way up to the regimental sergeant major of the army. And so I think that 
one of the challenges I've had is that I'm resourced to achieve today's mission where there's not much fat when we look at sergeant warrant officer numbers and trainees throughput. But within a very busy battle rhythm, I need to make time for not only innovation and improvement to help build better courses into the future, but I have a responsibility to assist the individuals to develop themselves. And it's almost like a tension where we're flying the plane while we're in the process of building or upgrading it. You mentioned there that ongoing relationship perhaps with some of the people who've worked for you here at Wonko Academy. It's a wider question, but when do you stop leading your soldiers when you do move on? Oh, gee, I think that that's, uh, that's a very personal question. There's no DS solution to that. Uh, you know, this is all more of the art than the, the strict science of the, the business of soldiering. I'll pinch a really good quote I saw from one of my former warrant officers earlier in the year who put something on Twitter that you stop leading your soldiers when they no longer bring you their problems. And so that sort of intuitively makes sense, doesn't it? Because we've all dealt with people in the workplace that we sort of have a feel, even though that they're identified as the leader, we don't really trust them right from the outset that they truly care about us. And so soldiers might be reluctant to bring some real personal challenges to the attention of that leader. And so perhaps that leader was more so in title than substance. Looking across the lines of effort that the Academy's been involved in and, and some of the engagement that we've done with wounded, injured, ill and also the veterans, I was really pleased to see some of the ongoing support that veterans of the Vietnam War are still providing to each other. Of course, these team members are in their 70s and 80s now, so they've long discharged from Army. But they're still part of the Army family and I, I've seen them still providing support to each other. And so if I sort of wind it back to, to those team members that we're, we're dealing with here and now in 2017 that are wearing our nation's uniform. Perhaps we have an obligation and a duty of care to continue to look after each other, potentially right through the rest of our lives. You mentioned that importance of an ongoing relationship there and in the news certainly there's been a lot of coverage around the transition issue. So from your time here, what has been perhaps your key lesson learnt around that transition question? I think it comes down to geometry, doesn't it? An army has a very broad base of a lot of junior uh, soldiers and junior officers, but as you progress through the ranks, it gets fewer and fewer. And I think one of the uh, the basic so what's is that it doesn't matter how good we may think we are, we're not all going to make it to the chief of the army or the regimental sergeant major of army. And so the so what for my time at the academy where in my first year I had 13 warrant officers class one who by any objective measure have been highly successful. They've risen to the rank of warrant officer class one all but one had been employed as a regimental sergeant major. The only one that didn't wasn't ECN 350, but had still risen to the very top of their trade. But they're not all going to go on to become tier bravos, tier charlies, or the one tier delta. And so a consideration for me was how do I assist my very senior team members that have been highly successful but whose time remaining in army is short, how do I assist them transition with dignity? And that's one of the considerations that I weighed coming up with one of the academy lines of effort, individual development. I heard the chief of army mention earlier in the year that the policy of army was to prepare a person to leave 
and then inspire them to stay. And I think that that provides a lot for junior officers like I that that work on the coalface in the academy. And, you know, when I was a private soldier in early 90s, uh, as, as we did back then, coming off an IET course, I was sent directly down to the sergeant's mess to bash Dixie's. I came into contact with this, um, this really exuberant delivery driver. And the story was that this guy was a woe one last year. He was the, the woe caterer. But once his time was up and he was pensioned off, I believe the only job that he could secure was the delivery driver to then ferry the fried chips to serve up to Sardens at the Sardens Mess uh, later on. And I've also seen some Sardens that I'd worked with, again, as a soldier, that um, the transition, whether medically or otherwise, and the only job they could get once they left was being on security at the front gate. And given the value and the, the skill sets of senior NCO in the Australian Army, perhaps the individual could have done a bit more and perhaps the organisation around that individual could have done more to assist the member transition with dignity. And one of the things we know now with military super is that most of us won't be entitled to military super until after compulsory retirement age. And so the so what there is that success for a lot of us needs to be paid employment after we transition from the military even if someone rises to the RSM of army or the chief of army, they may be looking at paid employment until they can access their super. And so like all things, if we invest a little bit over a long period of time, I think you can set the conditions for success. And so that's why I've been really interested to assist people who might've had year 10 to upskill to year 12 or to potentially get a tertiary degree because we know that the labour market is tight outside and I, having spent a couple of decades in army, know what a sergeant or a warrant officer means and the skill set that they bring means. But that doesn't mean that a civilian employer has the first clue. And so my belief in this regard is that that little bit of paper, that bachelor degree, the diploma, the associate diploma, is something that demonstrably indicates that this individual can apply themselves and is taking an active interest in their future. And it may just be enough to get them through the paperboard. So if 100 applicants are applying, you're not going to interview 100 people, you might interview 10. And where someone might not have developed that resume, they might not have made the cut, they might not have gotten down to the interview. But taking those little steps to get themselves a couple of bits of paper hopefully then we'll get them into the interview where that former sergeant or that former warrant officer can bring their interpersonal skills and to demonstrate their value to their future employer, therefore securing a job, looking after their family and finding meaningful employment until the end of their times. Lieutenant Colonel Michael Scott, Commanding Officer of Wonko Academy here at Canungra, thank you very much. To listen to more podcasts from the Academy, Visit the Cove website. The address is www.cove.org.au. That's www.cove.org.au. I'm Captain Sharon Mascaldare. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by the Australian Army and is copyright the Commonwealth of Australia. <laughs>